in the year 1516, a Catholic humanist scholar by the name of Erasmus posted, or po uh, published the very first entire New Testament in Greek. Uh, for, from the 4th century on, basically the whole church had read the Bible in Latin. Now look, some of y'all here and you're like snooze fest, man. All right, I'm with you. Why does that even matter? Why is that even a big deal? And what I want you to understand is because it determined that we would be on this in this church preaching this Bible on this day. It mattered everything. You see, Latin was not the original language of the New Testament. It was a translated language. The New Testament was written in Greek. And if you understand, when, as you read the Bible, what you begin to understand is that the quality of your translation determines the nature of the gospel that it, it tells you about. And so if your translation is flawed, if it is even perhaps corrupted in some sense, then the gospel that you teach and the gospel that you hear and the gospel that you love and the gospel by which you are saved is then corrupted or changed or altered in a way that is unhealthy and can be devastating, even damning. Well, in the year 1516, Erasmus publishes this first Greek New Testament. And you have a man, uh, Martin Luther, who is already dealing with so much unrest in his own soul, so much difficulty by just what he's reading and what he's seeing in the life of the church. And yet he's having trouble putting his finger exactly on what the issue is from the Scripture. Until he takes his Latin Bible, and Luther, a scholar in his own right, takes the Greek Bible, and he lays them side by side, and he's able to compare them. And what he realizes is, is that for hundreds of years, even a thousand plus years now, they had mistranslated the word repent. That in the Latin, the word is not, the Greek word repent is not translated as repent. Instead, it is translated as do penance. Do penance. See, here's what the Catholic Church taught and teaches still today. That Jesus is sufficient to save you. That his work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his offer of salvation is sufficient. That if you will, you will turn and seek forgiveness for your sins and bring them to him, then he will give you kind of a fresh start. But that what Jesus does is he stops before making you entirely and ultimately righteous. Essentially, he makes you neutral. And so that your responsibility is to take it from there and to do penance enough to make sure that you maintain a wiped record and do enough good works so that you can be credited with some form of righteousness. So in other words, the Catholic heresy is that they believe that Jesus is sufficient to save you, sufficient to forgive you, but not sufficient to keep you saved. Not sufficient to make you righteous. Not sufficient to make you entirely new and then keep you new. And so Luther reads this. And it's like a bolt of lightning has struck him. I've told you before, you've heard us say, Luther lived his life as a guilty man. 
He would go five plus hours in the confession booth with his confessors trying to confess every single sin that he could confess so that he would have some hope as he stood before Almighty God. On the day of his ordination, he's supposed to lead his very first mass. At that mass, he is supposed to conclude it by saying these words, to thee, the living, eternal God. And he can't even utter the words. He runs out and runs into the back hallways of the church, ashamed and embarrassed. And when he's asked about it, he says, what hope do I have to stand before Almighty God? And so as he reads the Bible, as it truly is, and he realizes that it's, it's not about him doing penance, it's about him turning from himself and embracing Christ and running to Christ. And as he begins to realize that it's, it's not about his good works that makes him righteous, but it is the finished work of Jesus Christ and the good, righteous life that he has lived that can be credited to him by faith alone. He, he is undone in of himself, and he begins to realize that now he has hope to offer all the people of Germany and all the people of the globe. And so when he declares war by nailing the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg church, he's really declaring that finally we have the good news. Finally we have the good news that Christ is sufficient. Christ is enough. Christ will make you righteous. Christ will wash you clean. Christ will hold you fast. Christ, not your good works, not your penance, not your confession, Christ. Amen. And so this week we're going we're gonna to go to what I believe to be the pillar of the five solas, the pillar principle of the Reformation. With this one, the rest of them fall or live. And it is solus Christus, for Christ alone. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1? Colossians chapter 1. If we were going to go to passages that can excite our hearts and provoke our hearts to worship of Christ, perhaps there is none greater than Colossians chapter 1. It is perhaps the gem, uh, the, 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 the gemstone of the entire New Testament. So we're going to read verses 15 through 20. Would you stand with me in the honor and reverence of reading God's word this morning? Colossians 1. Beginning in verse 15, God's inerrant word says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated.
the book of Colossians, Paul is writing. There's a, a man, a, a, an associate of Paul named Epaphras that has come to faith under the ministry of Paul. Paul had been preaching in Rome. Epaphras had been there. He had come, become converted under the preaching of the gospel. And having heard the good news, he does what all young Christians know to do. He runs home to the city of Colossae where he's from. And he begins to tell everybody the good news of Jesus Christ. And so there, this young man named Epaphras founds the church at Colossae. Well, as the church begins to grow and as the church begins to advance, false teaching finds its way into the life of the church. The, the false teaching of, Coloss of Colossae has been widely debated, but by reading the book, we can surmise some, some big picture things. And what we can know about the heresy of Colossae was that they believed that Jesus was good enough to save you, sufficient to save you, sufficient to forgive you for all of your past sins, but that you needed to add some things to your life if you were to remain saved. In other words, you needed to add some of the Jewish festivals to your life. You needed to add in some, some bodily disciplines into your life. So, so Jesus was enough to kind of get you to the starting line, but then if you wanted to remain in Christ, if you wanted to stay in Christ, then you kind of had to add in some of these Jewish holidays and Jewish traditions to remain in Christ. Do you see the relationship between the Colossian heresy and the heresy of the Catholic Church? We're talking about inches, millimeters, centimeters apart from one another. That both of them, the, what calls into question is the sufficiency of the salvation that is offered to us in Christ. What both of them want to bring into picture here is what we need to add to be saved. What we need to add to the salvation. What, what Christ's work needs to be, what, what needs to be added to the work of Christ so that the work of Christ might then be completed in us. And what I love about the way that that uh, Paul addresses that is that most scholars believe that verses 15 through 20 are a hymn, a hymn, something that was sang by the church in the very first century. So as we read verses 15 through 20, we are literally reading the worship songs of the first century, the things that as they gathered together in their churches and in their homes that they would use to exalt the name of Jesus. And so Paul comes to this hymn and he's going to call back the church at Colossae to the very words that they're singing. But brothers and sisters, what I want us to understand this morning is that this is not a hymn simply for the first century. This is a hymn for the ages. This is the hymn of the ages. This is the hymn of heaven. This is the song of the people of God. And we can stand shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters the same way from many centuries ago. What I think we'll notice is that the hymn is broken into two stanzas. And I want to take those stanzas and make them the two main points of my sermon. And then I think what we'll see, as we see in all good songwriting, is how the verses bring parallel and take one idea and then advance it forward. And I hope to point that out to you as we go. The first point that I want us to get this morning is that Jesus is the supreme creator. That Jesus is the supreme creator. So here's Paul. And he's received word from, from, uh, from Epaphras that, that there's a false teaching spreading through the church and that people are beginning to add to the gospel and add to the work of Jesus. 
And that they're saying that, that you, if you want to remain saved, if you want to grow in Christ, if you want to be a Christian, then you have to do this, 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 and this. And Paul is sitting there, and I imagine that he's trying to figure out, how do I address that? How do I confront this teaching in a way that is going to be effective and meaningful in the life of this church? And then he remembers the hymn. Then he remembers the song. The song that they are likely singing every single week. And he says, my brothers and sisters, remember the words that you sing. My brothers and sisters, think about the things that you're worshiping. Don't do like we do and just utter the words and mouth along through the service. No, engage your heart, engage your mind. Think about the things that you're saying. You see, the one that you're singing about is the one that has made everything. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one that Hebrews 1 says is the exact imprint of the Father. He is the one that when you have beheld him, he says that you have beheld God himself. In other words, what Paul is saying is when you think that your salvation in Christ is insufficient, when you think Jesus' work on the cross is insufficient, when you think that you have something that you need to add to the glory of the gospel in Christ, then you must remember this is God we're talking about. This is God we're talking about. And he doesn't need you. You can't add to him. He in and of himself is sufficient and mighty to save. This is God you've been singing about. This is God who died on the cross. This is God who was raised from the dead. This is God that is holding you fast in your salvation. So he begins to unpack that for us and what he says by to testify to the deity of Christ and to testify to how this is in fact God. He begins to open up our eyes to a number of different characteristics and descriptions. First he says that he is the eternal source. You'll notice in there that it says that all things were made, uh, were made by him, through him, and for him. I think each one of those phrases is significant. When it says that everything was made by him, it is saying that everything was his idea. Did you know that the, moon, that the sun is so enormous that 1.3 million earths can fit inside of the sun? And it was Jesus' idea. Did you know that the moon is perfectly placed so that the tides of earth are controlled? You realize earth is 75% water. And if the tide was not perfect, the earth could flood. But the moon is exactly where it needs to be. And it was Jesus's idea. Do you realize that the oxygen that you breathe in is produced by plants that inhale the carbon dioxide that you breathe out? It was Jesus's idea. In Revelation, John is searching, scrambling for words to describe the creatures that are surrounding the throne room of God, of, of God at this very moment. He's, the, the Lord has split back heaven, and you can just hear in this urgent, frantic writing in John, he's like, man, I ain't never seen nothing like that before. And all of those creatures that your eyes have never beheld, 
All of those worlds that you've never even imagined, all of that glory and splendor that you cannot articulate, all of it was Jesus's idea. Everything that has been made, everything that will be made, everything that has existed, everything that does exist, everything that will ever exist, all comes from the mind of Jesus Christ, for by him all things were made. But not only by him, but through him. That is that not only is everything Jesus' idea, but Jesus is the source of everything. That everything that has been made is made by Jesus' power and Jesus' energy and with Jesus' materials. You know, the, the proposition that nothing times nothing can equal everything is absolutely preposterous. It is the most irrational and illogical conclusion that a person can come to. And yet what our society and secular uh, intellectualism wants to teach us is that the only way that you can be considered smart and the only way that you can be considered academic and the only way that you can be considered intellectual is to actually believe that nothing times nothing equals everything. But I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, that it denies one of the most important laws of science, the first law of thermodynamics, which states that energy cannot be created nor destroyed. It only changes forms. See, perhaps you're here this morning, and your understanding of how the earth came to be is that you are a subscriber to the Big Bang. You believe that in a black hole in the, out in the nether sphere somewhere, there was a great cataclysmic implosion. And from that implosion, all energy and all matter begins to expand over the course of the earth, of the universe. And so our galaxy is an ever-expanding galaxy as this energy is still, this very day, moving forward. And you would propose that every other, every other uh, galaxy has begun the same way. Perhaps you would be an evolutionist and your mind would be, your belief would be that in the midst of a puddle, there was a single, a single cell. And from that, over billions and billions of years of mutations turned into human beings that can take and create multi-ton 747 jets and fly them on the other side of the universe to land at an airport that is a skyscraper in size. But brothers and sisters, let me ask you a question. Friends and neighbors that maybe have these very fair questions, let me ask you, where did the energy for the first implosion in the first black hole come from? Believers in evolution, who put the puddle there? Who put the puddle there? Where did the first cell come from? Everything must have a source. Everything must begin from somewhere. Nothing times nothing cannot equal everything. Here's what I'm here to tell you is that Jesus Christ is the Big Bang. Jesus Christ is the Big Bang. It was his idea and at his word, all that is came to be and here we are praising him thousands of years later. He is the eternal source of every animal species, every natural cycle, every scientific law. He is the source of it all. Not only has everything been made by him and not everything been made through him, but it says that everything has been made for him. That is that everything on earth is not aimless. Your life is not aimless. Your children's life is not aimless. Your neighbor's life is not aimless. Your, your education is not pointless. 
Your job is not pointless. Your struggles and your circumstances is not pointless. The death of your children, the, the long suffering of, your, of the loss of a husband, none of it is pointless. All of it has an aim and it is all for Jesus Christ. Everything that you've seen, whether it's the tiniest little cockroach or it's your very worst day, whether it's a homicidal dictator in a Middle Eastern country or it's a God-fearing dad who dies in obscurity, every single one, every single thing is made for the glory of Jesus Christ. Things that you've seen and things that you've never seen. Things that you understand and things you can never understand. Things that you have described and things that you will never be able to describe when the Lord gives you all eternity to do so. All of them have as their aim Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the eternal source. Jesus Christ is the eternal God. Jesus Christ is the one before whom all of us will one day bow. He is the one before whom all of us owe everything. But not only is Jesus the eternal source, but he is the ruling king. He is the ruling king. You'll notice there in verse 15 that it calls him the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now what I need you to understand is that that phrase, firstborn of all creation, has been a favorite phrase of heretics, ancient and new. Okay? If we were to go way back to the, to the early centuries of the church, we would come upon a man named Arius. And what he began to propose was that Jesus was a created being by God, the greatest being who lived on earth, but was a literal birth son that did not, did not exist eternally so. And he would come to Colossians 1 as evidence. If we were to go and we were to fly on to Salt Lake City to visit our friends at Life Point Church in Farmington, and we were to come into contact with some of the Mormons that are there, and we were to ask them their understanding of who Jesus Christ is, they would turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, and they would say that he was the firstborn of God himself, that he was a created being, not eternally so. If we were to drive to the other side of Oxford and go to the Jehovah's Witness uh, church, they would tell us the exact same thing by the exact same scripture. But brothers and sisters, that is a fundamental misunderstanding of what Paul is talking about in Colossians 1.15. That, that is stripping firstborn from uh, the firstborn of all creation straight out of its context. And if you've been able, been able to be in our How to Study the Bible class on Wednesday nights, you know like rule number one in Bible study, rule number one in Bible interpretation is that everything that is spoken is spoken in a context and we must receive the words in that context. So what is it that he's talking about in the firstborn of all creation? Well, this is a favorite phrase of the Old Testament. If we were to go all the way through the Old Testament, we would hear Israel called the firstborn of many nations. Now, let me ask you, is Israel the very first nation to have ever existed? It's not. Israel is not chronologically the firstborn of all the nations. What is he saying? No, Israel is preeminent among the nations. Israel is the greatest among the nations. Israel is the one to receive the inheritance of God, right? In the Hebrew culture, the firstborn receives the majority of the inheritance. So Israel is to receive the majority of the, of the inheritance because they are the chosen nation of God. 
If we were to go through the Old Testament, then we, what we would find is frequently the law of God is referred to as the firstborn. Now, is it saying that it's the very first book to have ever been written? Is it saying that it is the first syllables to ever have been organized? The first letters to have ever been drawn on a papyrus or some other kind of documented, uh, documented substance? No, that's not what it's saying at all. There are books that are older than the Bible. There are books that are contemporary with the Bible. But what it is saying is that the Bible is preeminent as the law of God. That the Bible reigns over the people of God because it is first of highest rank among the people of God. In Psalm 89, if you were to turn there, it would, cause, it would call David the firstborn of all the kings. Now, was David the very first king of Israel? He was not. Saul was the first king of Israel. But who is David? David is the anointed. David is the greatest king. It is David's throne that will endure forever. It is from the throne of David that the Messiah, Psalm 89, looks forward to this, will come and as the firstborn of God, as the firstborn of creation, will rule over all of the universe. See, that's what Paul is talking about. Not that Jesus was birthed, not that, and he was birthed, but not that Jesus was a creature, a creature created just like you and I. Not that Jesus wasn't eternally in existence, but rather that Jesus is preeminent. That Jesus is the king of all. That Jesus is the one before whom all men and women will answer. Some of you have been kind of keeping up with, uh, with my trip to, to Swaziland here recently and been able to kind of track down what we've been doing. And let me just tell you, I look forward to being able to have an opportunity to tell you more of what God did. I believe it was perhaps the most profitable uh, trip for the kingdom that I've ever been able to be a part of. But one of the extraordinary parts of this trip is that we got to meet the king of Swaziland, King Maswati III. Now, King Maswati is not a God-fearing man. He is not a godly man. In fact, he, he does a, a normal, a, 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 no, a number of very atrocious things, a number of very bad things. His, his human rights record is uh, less than stellar, to say the least. But when you have the opportunity to meet a king, you meet the king, right? And so, I know that we're going to meet him, and I'm not really sweating it a whole lot, not really worried about it a whole lot. And it starts kind of settling in on me when we're flying over there. All right, bro, you're from Rabbit Town, and you've got to talk to a king. You might want to have a plan together, you know? You, you, you might want to think through some of the things that you're going to say to the king. And, and then I kind of kept thinking, well, it's going to fall apart. It's going to this. And we go to this coffee shop, and we have to meet the older brother of the king, who's a prince, chief in Piwa. And, and he's coming in, and this cat's wearing like a rain jacket. And he walks up in there, and people start bowing down to him in the coffee shop. Mug and bean, all right? And I'm thinking, okay, this is who I'm having coffee with today. This is new, you know? So we, 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 he finally arrives, arrives, he's going to give us three minutes with the king, it's going to be at this golf tournament thing that they're doing, and, and you get there, and all of a sudden they, they rush you back to like this, this place, and there's all these dignitaries, the, the chief of uh, the, the de deputy uh, prime ministers back there, the speaker of the house of parliament's back there, all of the ministers for their various departments are back there, and you're hanging and thinking, man, I am way out of my league in this room. This is not where I belong. And, uh, and then they then they tell, all right, he's here, he's coming, and they've rolled out a red carpet. And literally everywhere the man walks, there is a red carpet. 
And, and then this, this, this huge entourage of BMW SUVs comes cruising up. And there's this guy walking, and in Saswati, he's shouting everywhere that they go, the praises to the king. And you start getting a little bit anxious because you think, okay, this is actually going to happen. This is real. This is real life. I'm on the other side of the world. There's an actual king right here, and I've got to utter a coherent sentence to him. Right? So they come in, they got the band playing, they got everything blaring, the national anthem and the military band and all the whole deal. And they, 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 they take him in, they put him on a throne and they, they hide him behind a curtain. By the time we get in there, they've got men in their late 50s, early 60s, and they're crawling up to him on their hands and knees. And I'm going through every Bible verse I know like, can I do that biblically? Like, I'm not sure. Like, I'm not bad. I don't know how to, what, what's going on here. And then I realized I'm not gonna have to do that. And he, they bring him out. But it was intense, y'all. It was intense. And so finally, they, everybody else has given like tens of thousands of dollars to have this opportunity to meet with him. I've got like a $10 Bible with his name on it. And I've got to do this walking bow thing, you know. And so when they finally, they, they, start crying, they start screaming out, the people with the gift, the people with the gift, the people with the gift. And I have rehearsed what I'm gonna say a thousand times in my mind and I'm walking up to this king in this bow and I'm telling myself, this is just a man, this is just a man, I'm more than a conqueror, I'm more than a conqueror and I'm walking up and, I, and I'm like, Abba, uh, 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 I present this to you on behalf of uh, um, Jesus Christ raised from the dead. I'm sure he was won over by my Brilliant presentation. <laughs> but every single one of us, trembling, trembling. And as I was leading, leaving there that day, I started thinking, you know what? Today, ever so briefly, we trembled in the presence of an earthly king. But one day, he will tremble for all eternity in the presence of a greater king. That before Jesus Christ, the ruler of all eternity, the ruler of that which is visible and invisible, that which is on earth and that which is in heaven, all will bow before him and will tremble in his presence. We read Ephesians chapter six and we get nervous. It talks about how there are rulers and powers and dominions, principalities in a cosmic war that you and I can't see. People that would make King Mizwati look like a peasant. We get scared because we think that's who's coming against us. That's who's at war for our souls. But in Ephesians chapter two, what does Paul teach us? But that our king, the sovereign king, the eternal king rules over there and is far above all of those rulers, all of those principalities and all of those dominions. Brothers and sisters, he is the ruling king. The final part of the first stanza teaches us that he is the sovereign sustainer, that in him all things hold together. That on earth we get frantic, and on earth we become afraid, 
And on earth, we don't know where we're going to turn. But in heaven, there is no sweat on his brow. In heaven, there is no pacing on the streets of gold. No, in heaven, he is seated upon the throne, holding together every galaxy, holding together the tiniest atomic matter, all without a drop of sweat running down his face. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what's keeping you up at night. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what you're afraid of. I don't know what you're facing. But what I know is that you can rest in the supremacy of Christ. You can rest in the supremacy of Christ. You can rest in the arms of the one who is the eternal source. You can rest in the reign of the one who is the sovereign king. You can be held fast because if he can hold together the planets of our solar system, he can hold together mine and your life. Brothers and sisters, you can rest in the supremacy of Christ. We haven't even got to the best part yet. We haven't even gotten to the crescendo of the song yet. Have we said anything about mercy yet? Have we said anything about grace yet? Have we said anything about redemption yet? When we sing, are those not the things that we sing? When we pray, are those not the things that usher us into the presence of God? We haven't even gotten there yet. You see, not only is he the supreme creator, but he is the supreme and gracious and merciful and kind redeemer. The creator is the redeemer. It is the scandal of the gospel. Jesus is not only the eternal source, but Jesus is the founder of an eternal church. He says that, that he is, uh, in verse 18, he says, and he is the head of the body the church, that God, that Jesus made God visible. And do you know who the church is? We are the ones who make Jesus visible. So Jesus came as God incarnate to live among us so that the God who is spirit might be seen by human eyes and not be utterly incinerated on the spot. And who are we? We are his church living in this world so that everyone who looks upon us throughout every gener generation and every nation and every part of the world might look at us and see Christ, might look at us and see Jesus. I wrote it down like this. Just as Jesus arranges the universe perfectly, so he has arranged his church. Just as Jesus reigns over the universe with sovereign power and wisdom, so he rules his church. Just as Jesus holds together the molecules of water and the nucleus of every atom, so he holds the church together with the unbreakable bond of his adopting, sanctifying love. Brothers and sisters, we are the church. We are his everlasting and eternal church. It is against us whom the gates of hell will not prevail. Brothers and sisters, do you look like it? Do you look like it? Are you making Jesus visible in this world? But Jesus is not only the ruling king, he is the risen king. He is not only the ruling king, he is the risen king. You'll notice in verse 18 that it says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The word firstborn comes right back in. Do you see the parallel in the second stanza there? It comes right back in, except now he's not just talking about ruling over kings. 
He's not just talking about ruling over Maswati. He's not just talking about the one before whom, before whom presidents will bow. He's talking about the one before whom death bows. Not just his rule over the creation, seen and unseen, but his rule over death and sin and life. That our Jesus is the risen king, that the resurrection proves Jesus as creator and exalts Jesus as Lord. And what I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of your own. That there's a day coming and we won't have to worry about testimonies like this anymore. There's a day coming in which you won't have any more tears to be wiped from your face. There's a day coming in which you won't worry about the diagnosis or the CAT scan. There's a day coming in which not only will bad go away, but the potential for bad will go away. Not only will sin go away, but the potential for sin will go away. Not only will hardship go away, but the potential for hardship will go away. Because you will be raised, raised from the dead in the power of Christ to walk in newness of life with him forever in a body that is glorified and pain-free, disease-free, sin-free. You'll walk with him and you'll enjoy him and you'll delight in him. And every single day you'll think, man, I wish Monday wasn't coming. I wish I didn't have to go back to my job. I wish I didn't have to go back for dialysis. And then you'll remember, oh, today's the first day of forever. My vacation's never coming to an end. I'm going to walk with Jesus in joy and delight for all eternity. And whatever I do, I will delight in it. Maybe this morning you're wondering, how can you people be so sure? <laughs> how can you be so sure that Jesus is the one that was, that was the eternal source of everything? How can you be so sure that Jesus is the one before whom all will bow? How can you be so sure that Jesus is the big bang as you so boldly pronounce? Our hope, our assurance, and our certainty are, find themselves squarely in the resurrection. The resurrection is our hope. And this morning, if you've got all of those questions and you're, you're kind of ping-ponging that back and forth with me a little bit, that's totally okay. I'm glad that you're here. But let me ask you, how do you answer the question of source? How do you answer the question of source? And what will you do with the one who split time and history by the tales and testimonies of people that witnessed that he rose from the dead. What will you do with a man that was raised from the dead? Because Jesus is not just the ruling king, he is the risen king. Jesus is not only the sovereign sustainer, but he is the sovereign peacemaker. See, verses 19 and 20 are to be jarring to us. They, they, they put us in our place. Verse 19 says that in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That in everything, in every way that he could be God, he was God. He was God in holiness. He was God in righteousness. He was God in wisdom. He was God in power. He was God in dignity. In every way that he could be God, he was God. And yet then verse 20, it says that it, he brought all things into peace with God. Reconciling them to God by the shedding of the blood on possessive his cross. I want you to think about that. 
The God who owns all that there is. The God who owns every ocean and every mountain. The God who owns the bloom of every flower, the praise of every king, the God before whom the whole creation is proclaiming his handiwork, the God before whom all, all things seen and unseen, creatures known and unknown, come and tremble. He owns every single part of it, and yet part of the things that he owns, one of the things that he owns is the cross. What sense does it make? that God himself would own a cross. And yet it was on that cross in which he spilled his righteous blood and gave up willingly his righteous life so that you and I, who were enemies of God, who find in our hearts still to this very day a rebellious spirit resisting godliness in our lives so that we might be made at peace with him. Do you see the grace? Do you see the love? Do you see the glory, the crescendo of this song is not a moment of shouting, but a moment of dying in which he brings everything together. But he says that he's not just reconciling those things on that day in which the veil was torn, but in him and through him and for him, all things were made and in him and through him and for him, all things will be remade. So brothers and sisters, I come to you this morning and I tell you, you don't have to add anything to Jesus. You don't have to add anything to Jesus. Jesus doesn't need your festivals. Jesus doesn't need your rituals. Repent and give Jesus your life. And Jesus will do everything. For it is in Christ alone that we have hope. And it is in Christ alone that we are saved. And it is in Christ alone that we will take joy and revel in his glory for all eternity. Let me pray for us.